We are continuing the Gospel of Luke, and I'm very excited about it because it just gets better and better. I was sad at ending the book of Genesis, but now I'm so excited about Luke that I've kind of forgot about that sadness. But let me prepare you that I want you to see the real Jesus, not the Jesus that the world has morphed him into, some blonde-haired, blue-eyed sissy, or some political object. I want you to see the real Jesus as we go through the book of Luke. Uh, Mark Branham's our scripture reader this morning, so Mark, if you'll jump on up here and grab a microphone. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 40, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. There we go. And Mark, if you want to stand in this direction so you can see the screen. Y'all follow along as Mark Branham. That's a great t-shirt. Where'd you get that? Uh, found it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mark and Karen were with us from the very beginning. They came with us from the mother church, came over here, helped us get revolution started, and they've been with us 10 years now, it's been. Isn't that crazy? All right, read God's word for us, Mark. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Who recognizes what this is? This is the Hubble Spacecraft Telescope. And it has done some amazing things. It's 10 times more powerful than its closest predecessor. And the Hubble, Hubble telescope has helped us to see things that man didn't even think were possible and see the universe that God has created in more amazing ways. In fact, recent images contain more than 5,000 galaxies. When you think about what a galaxy is, <laughs> it just blows your mind. And it does this through special high magnification. And this morning, Mary's going to do some magnification of her own. She's going to magnify the Lord. So we, the Hubble helps you see God's universe better. Magnify, uh, Mary's going to help us see God better. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. It's interesting because after this, there is 400 years of silence. So we have from Genesis and then systematically through the Old Testament, the 39 books, where God is speaking through different prophets, kind of spaced out, but on a regular basis, speaking to them, communicating with his people, giving them revelation, and then all of a sudden, shh, for 400 years. And Israel was starting to wonder, has God forgotten us? But God told them that the next time I speak, you will know it. And he says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, which is referring to Christ, shall rise with healing in his, in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So one of the last things Malachi tells us is that when Messiah comes, people will be what? Leaping. And then Mary goes to Elizabeth, and John the Baptist is in her stomach, and John the Baptist does what? He leaps. Isn't that crazy? I mean, like, from the preborn baby, this prophecy is being fulfilled, and that happiness would come, and John the Baptist is the first one. And so this is Mary's song of praise, often called the Magnificat, which is just a Latin word for to magnify. And she starts it off by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then the rest of the passage is the reasons why she's magnifying God. And so... Um, there is definitely a chiastic structure in this one. In fact, here's what's, this is pretty fascinating. You'll, you'll be excited with me, I hope. I, um, I was, whenever I start a new passage, I go to a website called Chiasmus Exchange where Bible scholars and theologians have shared chiasms they've found in the Bible. Some of them are hundreds of years old. And I went to this passage and there wasn't one. But then I started looking at the language there. And whenever I look for patterns, that are the clues that God's trying to say something. 
And so in this, in this passage right here, do you see any re repeated phrase? Hopefully you can see it from where you're seated. I know it's kind of small. He has, very good. You see the phrase, he has, and here's what's fascinating. How many times? Seven times. Okay, and of course, seven's a big deal in the Bible. So that, that's telling me, hey, there's a structure there. So I started, I compared number one and number seven, and guess what? They matched. Two and six matched. Three and five, you know, right down, it works its way into the middle. And so um, we see it seven times, and watch this. The, the beginning, it says, for he has, and it talks about his servant Mary and how they will call me blessed. But then the parallel passage is his servant Israel. You see, God brought the Messiah through the nation of Israel, but specifically through the woman, Mary. And they're both called the servant of God, and they're both blessed. Mary's blessed. And then, of course, the Abrahamic uh, covenant is the blessing that I will bless you and make you like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea from Genesis chapter 12. So you see the parallel there. And then the next one down, it says he has done great things for me. And then the parallel verse says he's done good things uh, and, he, and has sent away the rich. So for the hungry, he's done good things. So in our Western culture, we think of if you're saying something's okay, it's good, it's great. That's not the way the Bible is using it. Good is a reference to the quality of something. Great is the reference to the magnitude of something. You can have something that's good, like a slice of pie, and it's really good tasting. But you can have 15 pies, and that's the magnitude. That's great. Okay, So it's, it's not about quantity only. It's about quality. But he's saying God is doing these things for his people, especially for the humble, especially for the poor. And then the next part way in as we move into the sandwich, he says he, he has shown his strength with his arm and he contrasts that with the power of people. He's like, my strength in my arm is more mighty than your throne. And then it brings us to the center, which is the meat of the sandwich, which is the main point of Mary's prayer. It says he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. The main focus of this is don't be proud. And that's what Mary's saying, that you know, God has humbled me through this whole situation, and God is going to use the Messiah, Jesus, the baby in her womb, he's going to use them to scatter the proud. So here's how we're going to divide up this passage using what we just saw. First of all, God is to be magnified by us, not just Mary. That God blesses humble servants, that God does great and good things. God is stronger and he is mightier. And then our conclusion will be that God scatters the proud as we work our way into the middle of the caustic structure of the sandwich there. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. How can it be that a approximately a 14-year-old girl could pray a prayer with incredible depth and spiritual maturity? I mean, think about where you were when you were 13, 14, 15. <laughs> I doubt you could have prayed something like Mary just prayed. But I don't think this was just coincidence. We could say, yes, the Holy Spirit inspired her, which he definitely did. But God and the Holy Spirit uses what we already know. She very much knew Scripture. In fact, she's quoting Scripture. She's paraphrasing two passages of Scripture, Psalm 34 and Hannah's prayer. Psalm 34 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. She's definitely using Bible language in her prayer. And she says, my soul. She doesn't just say my lips or with my voice. She's saying in the deepest parts of who I am, I will magnify the Lord. And again, what does, um, what does magnification do? It helps you to see something better. God is a spirit. God is invisible. He demonstrates. He shows himself through you and through me. Our job is to be the magnifying glass that helps people see God better. And she's speaking to herself. She's speaking and saying, in my soul, I have made the conscientious decision to let my life not magnify how great I am, how beautiful I am, how intelligent I am, but I'm going to let people, when they see me, they will see beyond Mary and they will see the Lord Jesus. That's her goal in life. She, she focused on her soul. She was speaking to herself. In fact, David speaks this way. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, not because of, I have a deep down conviction in who I am, 
It's going to express itself in my emotions and in my praise, my spirit. It rejoices. And what she's rejoicing in is God, her Savior. Now, let's rehearse where Mary's come from. She's 13, 14 years old. She's told that she's going to become pregnant miraculously. But is anybody going to believe that besides Joseph? No. For, for 30 years, she's going to be the reputation of the loose girl that either one of two really bad things happened. Either her and Joseph were messing around before they were married, which was very taboo in that generation and should be today, but it's not. And so therefore, they would be outcasts. They would be always called that, which she was. Or number two, would have been worse, she was unfaithful to Joseph. One of those two bad reputations was going to stigmatize her life and change her life forever. But she chooses to rejoice, not in her circumstances, but in the God who is sovereign over her circumstances. And I want to also point out that she says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who needs a Savior? Everybody does, because all of us are what? Sinners. Mary is acknowledging that she is a sinner and she needs a Savior. So I grew up Catholic, and to my Catholic friends, if we want to teach that Mary was sinless, it's not biblical. Mary acknowledged that she needed a Savior, and she recognizes that in her humility. And another thing that Mary is referencing in her prayer is the prayer of Hannah. What do we know about Hannah? She was unable to have a child, and she pled, and she begged God to give her child, and she finally said, God, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you, and he will serve all of his life in the temple. And I'm willing to sacrifice my son if you will take him and receive him as my offering. And she's prayed, my heart exalts the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. See a lot of parallels between Psalm 34 and Hannah's prayer here. So Mary prayed in depth because Mary knew God's word in depth. She was paying attention in synagogue. When the word of God, when the scrolls were being read, when her family memorized scripture at home, all those things, Mary was paying attention to God's word. And so that's why she was able to pray that way. Let me ask you a question. Do you, like me sometimes, struggle in your prayers? Like, I don't really know what to say. The deeper we get into God's word, the deeper our prayers will be. In fact, the best thing to do when you don't know what to pray is just open up the Bible and start praying the Scriptures. Start just working through those verses of Scriptures. Work through Psalm 1. Work through John 3.16. Work through Philippians 4. And just pray, God, I pray this would be true in my life. I pray this will be true for my family. And just work your way through God's Word. Charles Spurgeon was asked, what's, the most, what's most important, prayer or Bible study? Charles answered with a question, What's most important to you, inhaling or exhaling? They're both very important, aren't they? And so breathing in is reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God. Exhaling is prayer. And so one directly affects the other. If your prayers are shallow, it's probably because your Bible study has been shallow. God is to be magnified by us as well. And so then we brings us to the next point. God blesses humble servants. God blesses humble servants. It says four. This is the first, she gives a whole list of four, uh, the word four, because, 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 seven times. Number one, because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Two words she's using to describe herself. She describes herself as humble and her humble circumstances, and she describes herself as a servant. Remember Gabriel? surprised Mary and told her about all this to happen. And she's like, how can this be since, I don't, since I'm a virgin and haven't known a man? And he tells her how, and she says what? Let it be. Now, you remember the old Beatles song, Let It Be? <laughs> and Paul McCartney sings, you know, sometimes Mother Mary comes to me whispering words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be. Well, the Ma Mother Mary in the Beatles song is not the Mother Mary of the Bible. Paul McCartney's mom's name was Mary. But it's kind of an interesting coincidence that it's let it be. And Mary says, all right, let it be. I submit. Let me, I am the, you're the, the maid servant of the Lord. She says, I'm here. I exist. I live and breathe to serve you, God. Whatever you bring into my life, as difficult as it's going to be. And she probably had no idea how difficult. She had a little bit of an idea. 
She's saying, let it be. She's, she, I'm here to serve you. Humility always produces service. Humble people serve God. It always works that way. Um, consider our Lord Jesus. No one more humble than Jesus. And within hours of being brutally tortured, and he knows it's coming, he's choosing to wash feet. Twelve dirty feet of disciples, of dirty disciples, who, who were not worthy of, of this. And he says, this is how I want you to treat one another. In Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom. When you got saved, you were set free. You became brothers. Only, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Say, hey, well, now that I'm free, I could do whatever I would. No, use that as an opportunity through love to what? Serve one another. That's what Sunday morning is about. That's what our week is about, is to find how can we serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, D.L. Moody was kind of like the Billy Graham of the 1800s. He was preaching revivals around the world. Literally tens of thousands of people all over the globe came to Christ because of D.L. Moody. Pastors were so impressed by him that when he hosted a conference up in Boston, pastors from all over the world came to hear what he had to say about how to reach the lost for Christ. And so uh, there was a, 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 a seminary that had a dormitory, and they used that dorm to host a lot of the pastors. And there was several floors of this one dorm where pastors from Europe were staying on the third and the fourth floor. So Dale Moody went down the hallways of this as he was praying for them, and he noticed that the European pastors put their shoes outside the door. Well, in Europe, that was the custom, not just to not wear them inside, but also you would leave them outside because in Europe, at, wherever, at the hotels and the motels where you stayed, they had what we call hall maids that would come down and pick up all the shoes, polish them, and then put them back by the door. So when you got out the next morning, you could put on a freshly shined pair of shoes. So all the pastors are thinking, hey, I'm putting my shoes outside, so the hall maid. Well, this was a big conference in America. This wasn't Europe. There were no hall maids. And D.L. Moody saw, saw them. And it was late, and he went and told some seminary students, hey, the European pastors are expecting their shoes to be shined. Can some of y'all help me? And they're all like, well, I'm too busy. I'm gonna, I got to go to bed. I got a final in the morning or whatever. And he's like, oh, okay. And so one of the students who was up studying walked by D.L. Moody's door, saw the light on at like 2.30 in the morning, knocked on the door. And he said, come in. He went inside, and there's D.L. Moody, the host of this big worldwide conference, shining every pair of shoes. And nobody would have even known he wasn't going to tell anybody except this one student saw what he was doing and then told others, and then we know about this story today. God forbid that we think we're too good for any job. Our job should be, how can I serve my church? Scrub toilets? Mow the grass? Change diapers? Vacuum? Is there anything that's beneath us? I would think not. If the, our Savior could wash feet, we certainly can serve one another. But if we struggle to serve the body of Christ, we have to check our heart and see what's missing. And probably the key ingredient that's missing is, is humility. Humility always produces service, but service does not always produce humility. We can serve God for wrong reasons. We can serve God to be seen, to impress to somehow to assuage God's wrath. Hey, God, look, I did this for you, so you, you got to do this for me. <laughs> you know, we kind of use it as a bargaining chip for God. Make sure that whatever you do, that you do for the service of the Lord, you do it in humility, not because you, God owes you or because you're trying to impress others, but simply because you love God and, and that's what you want to do for the body of Christ. James chapter 4 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, it says, God opposes the proud, but what does he give to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. And when it says, it says, he's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. So here's this formula that is universal throughout the world. This is a God-given principle. You're proud, you think you're somebody? God says, okay, you're on my hit list. <laughs> I'm going to knock you down a little bit and, and use it and try to humble you. And then, you, but God says, hey, I've got this grace I want to give, but I'm going to give it to people with humble hearts. And humility says, hey, I stink. Man, I cannot do this by myself. I really need help. I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. God, please help me. And God's like, 
I would be glad to. (laughs) When you have a humble attitude, that's the kind of people that God wants to help. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Two type of people walk into a room. One says, oh man, I don't fit in here. I'm a nobody. I'm not as pretty as they are. I don't have as much money as they. And they feel really insecure. That's not humility, okay? The, the humble person walks in and goes, oh, that person looks like they need some encouragement. Let me go over and talk to them. Oh, wow, looks like we're running out of water. Let me go get some for everybody. Oh, wow, you know, who, this person looks like they're sad. Can I, what can I do to lift them up and ask them how their, how their week is going? That's what a humble person does. It's not that they have low self-esteem. It's that they don't esteem themselves at all. They, in fact, Philippians 2 says, esteem others better than yourself. You're focused on the needs of others just as Christ. You say, well, Gary, I, sometimes I just can't do that because I'm having a really rough week. Um, have you considered the Passion Week of Christ? <laughs> All that he's going through that week, and yet he's like, while he's even on a cross, he says, John, take care of Mary. Mary, take care of John. He's thinking about everybody else's needs while he's dying. He's, he's thinking of others no matter what the circumstances. Let me ask you a really difficult question, and I don't want you to answer out loud, obviously, but in what areas of your life does your pride show itself the most? And the answer to that question will expose the idol in your life. Is your idolatry your 401k? Is your idolatry your educational track record? Is your idolatry your spouse? Is your idolatry, your physical fitness, your health, your family fortune, whatever? What is your idolatry? And that's where pride will reveal its ugly head the most. One of the best-selling books in all the world is The Purpose-Driven Life. I don't condone everything that Rick Warren says, but I don't, that's true for everybody. He probably doesn't like everything I say. But this is an amazing book. I recommend that you read it if you haven't. It's about 20 years old. Our church went through this thing for uh, seven weeks a few years ago. Um, but the very first line of the book, when you open up and you go to the very first page is, it's not about you. <laughs> what a fantastic way to start a book. And if we could make this the mantra of every day, when you go to work, it is not about you. When you come home and sit at the dinner table with your family, it's not about you. When you walk into church, it is not about you. Francis Chan one time had a member of his church come to him and said, at the end of the service, said, Pastor, I just really didn't enjoy service today, worship today. And he goes, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. And man, I, I tell you, when you, when you, Lord, you know, in a few years, half of you may not even be here because you're going to get, a, tr- a job is going to transfer you, you're going to move to another part of town, whatever it may be, and you're going to be looking for another church. And what's sad is people look for a church about what's in it for me. Do they have this program for my teenager and this program for me and this program for whatever? Why don't you go somewhere where you're needed and say, hey, what can I do? This is a church that's young and growing and needs help. Where can I help? You know, but everybody often wants to look for the big one that has everything, all the machinery in place. And we treat church like the consumers we are, like a grocery store. I'm going to go there as long as the service is good and they have what I want and the price isn't too expensive, then that's where I'm going to shop. But as soon as they raise the prices or they're unfriendly to me, then I'm going to go shop at this store. Don't treat the Lord's church that way. It's not about us. It says, for, Mary goes on to pray, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And I don't think this is an egotistical statement. I think this is a statement of astonishment. Can you believe it? God chose me from now on. People are going to talk about the Virgin Mary for thousands of years. Me? They're going to call me blessed? I think this is a a, a humble statement. It would be consistent with who Mary was. But Mary, like I said before, is a parallel to the nation of Israel. So Mary calls herself the humble servant. And then the parallel verse below says, For he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations, notice the key word, will call, call me blessed. And when you look at what that says about Israel, Israel is also the humble servant. And it says, and he spoke, which is like a calling or a blessing, the Abrahamic blessing to offspring forever, to generations. So you see the parallel between the two. And so Israel is a great example to us. And Israel 
you, when you study the Old Testament, you see that the cycles they went through. You've heard of the book of Judges. Judges has seven cycles that I'm going to talk to you about. 1 Corinthians 10 says, the Old Testament about Israel says, these things were written for our examples. So we're not supposed to unhinge or unhook from the Old Testament, like some famous pastor said recently. We need to study the Old Testament. And here's what we see. We see the cycle of sin that they went through. We see that they obey and God blesses them. God blessed them abundantly above any other nation. And he just loved them because he loved them. And he wanted them to be like a, a city on a hill. So the nations would go like, wow, look how good God is to them. If they, they obey, look what God does. So if we obey, that God will do that for us. But then they became very proud of their blessings. And what happened is they, they just became very comfortable and apathetic. Like, hey, we're God's chosen people. We got this. And they became very apathetic in their service to God, which led to pride and compromise. Pride, they become very proud of who they were. We're chosen because we're awesome. No, God says, I chose you because I chose you. But they got very proud of who they were, and they became very apathetic. They started compromising. Well, a little idolatry won't, hit, won't, hit, won't hurt over here. You know, our crops over here, our wheat field is not doing very good. And the Philistines, they have a god of the wheat, so we'll bring in this god over here, and it's just, you know, good business relationship, and maybe we'll get some blessings over here. And they started to compromise, and that led to sin and suffering. When it compromise always does. Compromise always does. When you start compromising your moral principles, a little white lie here, a little fudging on the books over here, a little you know, tease over here on the sale, to get more sales over here. All those things will lead to suffering. And suffering breaks us and makes us humble. And we say, God, I'm sorry, I have messed up. And so God says, all right, I will work with you. I'm going to bring a deliverer. And in the book of Judges, you see Deborah and Samson and Gideon and all these deliverers. God brings a deliverer into life. Of course, the ultimate deliverer is who? Jesus and Jesus is the liver, and he delivers us from our sin and from the consequences of our sin. And then there's restoration, and they start serving God again. So God says, okay, now that you're obedient, I'm going to bless you. And then because we're humans, we're like, that's it. We've, we've arrived, right? No, we go right back, and it's just like the cream rinse, repeat and, and do it over again. You know, we, we, we have obedience, so guess what? We become oh, look, I'm fine. I'm good. Life is great. I don't need to pray every day. And we go right down through the cycle and we start the whole thing over again. Mary is a parallel to Israel and we can learn a lot from Israel and just be humble servants. God blesses humble servants. So it says he, is, he spoke to them and his offspring forever. And notice the key words in here, in remembrance of his mercy. Grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when he doesn't give you what you do deserve. And, you know, a lot of you will ask me how I'm doing. And you know what my classic line is. I borrow from Dave Ramsey. I say, I'm doing better than I deserve. I get the strangest looks from people at the grocery store when they ask me that. Because they think somehow you know you. And I've even had people say, no, you deserve to have a good day. I'm like, no, no, I really don't. I'm, anything I get from God is, is way more than I deserve because we need to realize we're recipients of mercy. If we asked for what we deserve, we would all be in hell right now. Christ does not owe us another breath. He, does not, he, he did not die on the cross because we deserved it. It was only through his mercy. So we are to magnify God and we are to be humble servants. And that brings us to the third point that God does great and good things. And remember, great and good are not contradictory or levels. One's quantity and one's magnitude. It says, for he who, has, he, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary's saying, look, at, look what God has done. Now, for her to say that's pretty amazing. She could be focusing on the negative and saying, look what God did to me. I'm pregnant. Everybody thinks I'm a tramp. That's what she could have focused on. My parents are going to disown me. She, at this point, she does not know that Joseph's going to stay with her. In fact, when she told Joseph, what was Joseph's reaction? I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to go follow the divorce papers. I'll do you a favor. I'll do it privately. I could publicly scorn you in front of everybody. You could even, we could even stone you, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the paperwork behind the scenes, but I am out of here. And Gabriel steps in and goes, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> this is a package deal. Here's why she's pregnant. 
She, at this point, does not know Joseph. She could be losing Joseph, losing her mom and dad, losing everything, including her reputation. And yet, what is she focusing on? I get to be the mother of the Messiah. Think about that. As much pain, as much distress, as much grief as that's going to bring, I get to focus on the positive. And the positive is incredibly positive. It's no small uh, thing going on here. This is Summit Lake Camp in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And this is uh, where I surrendered to preach and when I was a teenager. And this is also where a, a camp evangelist challenged us to adopt a life verse. That you should pick a verse in the Bible and just make that your life verse. This is my motive. This is my theme for living. So I decided to pick this verse right here. 1 Samuel 12, 24. Patrick, would you read that nice and loud for me? So Mary is, is saying this in her prayer. She is really taking time to consider the great things that God has done. Philippians 4 says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things of good report, think, make the conscientious choice to think, to focus, to meditate on these things. Because sin has flawed our human brains, our default is to go negative. Somebody walks in the room, we see the negative. We, so we, we are having memories of the past, negative, regrets. We've got to force our brain to go in this direction and think positive. Not be in denial about the past. Say, hey, I've learned some lessons, let's move on. That's why your rearview mirror is much smaller than your windshield. Focus on the future. Look at the great things that God has done. And it means we have to stop and consider. You have to force yourself to get alone every morning, sometime during the day, just to meditate and consider what has God done. Yes, there are, life is not perfect. It will not be till Jesus comes. In fact, God is using all these struggles to make you want heaven to come now. That's why he says, pray, your kingdom come. Jesus, I want you to come now. Be king of my life right now. So the negatives in your life are driving you to your knees. They're driving you to his throne. They're driving you to consider, yes, there's all this junk, but look at all the good. In a world of 8 billion people, I'm probably the half a billion who know Christ as Savior. I could be the 7.5 billion who are lost. I could be the people right now waking up in Somalia, wondering, are the Muslims going to come raid our village today and kill us all because we're Christians? I could be waking up in the Sudan today and going, are we going to eat today, Dad, or are we going to not eat? Just stop and consider. Get your eyes off your phone. Get your eyes off the screen. Get alone with the Bible and just consider the great things God has done. So we talked about mercy and how his mercy is directed towards those who fear him, for those who fear him. Now, I... Uh, most of you know one of my favorite people to listen to and study is Dr. Tim Keller, who recently passed away this year. And we agree on an awful lot, but there's some things we disagree on. One thing we disagree on is what is the fear of the Lord? And he says it's, it's a reverential respect. It has nothing with being afraid of, but I don't think that's exactly biblical. And uh, he's not alive today for me to argue with him, but I don't know him anyway. But anyway, people will say reverential respect and all. I think it includes that, but I don't think it's limited to that. And let me just let Jesus prove my case. Luke chapter 12, verse 5. Let me say that better. Let me give you Jesus' case. That sounds a lot less egotistical, okay? He says, but I will warn you, okay? Sounds like something fear involved, whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, if you insert respect in there, does that sound like something is hell? Oh yeah, I respect God because of hell. No, I think I'd be afraid. If you're lost, you should be afraid of God. It's just like fire. Fire is something you should be afraid of. Now, as long as you treat it right, you have it under control, it can make a nice hot shower. It can be a wonderful fireplace. It's a great way to cook. But fire out of control can do a lot of damage, and you should be afraid of that. And so when we obey God's word, everything is under control, and we respect that. But when we disobey God, the fire can break loose and the wrath of God can be poured out. So there's a parallel verse to this one also. It says, He has filled the, the hungry with good things 
and the rich he sent away empty. And I think this hungry is not only talking about people who are literally hungry, but I think it's also talking about even more so those who are spiritually hungry. It's like Mary is already teaching the Beatitudes before, that Jesus would be teaching 30 years later. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit in contrast to the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in that same thing, he says, blessed are those who are what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Why are we, as American Christians, not hungry for the great and good things of God? Let me ask you a question. Just Today, if someone came to you at 1.30 and they said, hey, you want to eat something? You're probably going to say, oh no, I'm not hungry because why? I just ate. Okay, it's after lunch. You're probably not hungry. And the reason we're not hungry for the great things of God, the reason we're not hungry for even the good things of God is because we're already full. Our brains, our souls, our spirits have already been filled with all kinds of junk. And it's not just you've eaten good things. It's like you've eaten marshmallows and Twinkies and Twizzlers and and lemonade and whatever, and then you say, I'm not hungry. In fact, I'm falling into like a, a sugar coma right now. And I'm telling you, we really need to unplug. This world is becoming addicted to their phones, and that's the way they want us. They want us face down, walking around like zombies. And we've got to put it down. We've got to get into God's word. We've got to focus on the good things. And we've got to hunger and thirst after righteousness, as Jesus said. The next point is that God is stronger and mightier. He has shown, shown, shown his strength with his arm. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Could have shown his strength with anything, with his hand, with his foot, with his mouth, but he chose his arm. And there's a biblical reason why that Mary prays this way. Isaiah 51 says, Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. And then he, also he says in that same chapter, in that same book of the Bible, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. Mary's praying about the arm of the Lord, and who is the arm of the Lord? A couple of verses later, see if you can tell me who this is describing. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. So let me ask you a question. Who is the arm of the Lord? Jesus. So when she prays, he has shown his strength with his arm, She's saying, this baby in me is the arm of the Lord. God is showing his strength. And what a paradox. God is going to show how mighty he is through a little tiny baby. That's what Jesus does, though. He could have came to earth and just immediately came to earth on a white horse as king of kings and lord of lords and just destroyed all the armies of the world. He will do that someday. But that's why the Jews missed him. Because in the Bible, in Isaiah... And in Ezekiel and Daniel, there are clearly two messiahs. In fact, Jews today will believe there's actually two different people that are these two messiahs. But the messiah it presents in the Bible is two comings of one messiah. That first he comes as a suffering servant, and then he comes as the conquering king. But if you're under Roman oppression and wanting to pay less taxes, which one do you want to come first? You want the conquering king to come first. That's why they rejected him. That's why they crucified him. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm doing things totally upside down. Instead of coming as a full-grown man who destroys the armies of the world with the sword of his mouth, I'm going to come as an infant, as a tiny baby, not born in a palace, but born in a manger, born in a stable. Not born to a queen, but born to a little girl, innocent, tiny, 13-year-old girl. He says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. So it's contrast between God's strength, which is the arm of the Lord, which is Jesus, versus the mighty thrones of all the kings of this world. Daniel chapter 2 says, he removes kings and sets up kings. You know, if you don't like the results of the last election, have a problem with God. God raises up Joe Biden's. God puts down Donald Trump's. He raises up Obama's. He, puts, he raises up Hitler's. He raised all the kings of the world. And you say, well, why would he raise up a bad king? Because we get what we deserve. You don't like who's the head of a country? You've got, he's giving the people what they deserve. He uses even Pharaoh to, to discipline his people. So all those things are God's sovereignty. Don't ever think that God got upset with the last election results. 
God knows what's happening. It doesn't mean we shouldn't vote or anything like that. But what God is telling us that I don't care who you are and which ruler of the world you may think you be, I put you there and I can take you out. And someday when he returns to set up his kingdom, he will destroy all these armies of all the world. And he does it all through a little tiny baby. He's showing that this little tiny baby is going to put down all the, doesn't matter how many nuclear weapons you have, doesn't matter what your GDP is, doesn't matter how many soldiers you have, this little tiny baby is the Prince of Peace and he will change the world as he already has demonstrated that he has. God is stronger and he's mightier. And now it brings us to the last point that God scatters the proud. Remember, that was the middle of the sandwich, right? That's the, the, the middle of the chaotic structure. It says he has scattered the proud, scattered. Focus on that word there. What's another time in the Bible, think back to the Old Testament, where God scattered people? Tower of Babel. You guys are so smart. The Tower of Babel. God told humans after the flood, go over all the planet and be fruitful and multiply. I've got a whole planet here. It needs to be populated. So scatter yourselves in a good way and be fruitful and multiply. And they say, no, no, no. We're staying here. And we don't need you to get us to heaven, we're going to build our own tower to heaven and we're not scattering. We are going to be one people. We're going to be here united against you, God. And God says, okay, if that's the way it, be, it will be. And what's funny is God says, the Trinity says, let us go down and let's look at their little temple there. It says, let us go down. And so he goes down and he destroys it and he scatters the proud. And here's why. This is so key. If this is the middle of the sandwich, this is the meat of the meat. He scatters them in the thoughts of their hearts. In the thoughts of their hearts. Proverbs, Solomon said, as a man thinks, so is he. What's going on deep down inside of here? When you're bored, when you're stressed, when you are not sure what to do, what's going on deep down in here reveals who you really are. What's the first thing you go to? Where where do you turn to? Matthew, Jesus says, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the same word translated here, thoughts, your mind, what you're thinking, what's deep down inside your thought processes. Colossians says, and you were once alienated and hostile, guess what, in your mind doing evil deeds. What's in your mind and in your heart produces the evil deeds. And all of us, before you knew Christ, our minds were corrupt. They were tainted by sin and they were hostile towards God producing all this. And that's why Proverbs says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Man's biggest problem isn't a shortage of food, a shortage of clean water, isn't the wrong political party. Man's biggest problem is his sinful pride. And we all struggle with it. Even if you know Christ is your Savior, you're born again, and you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, you will struggle with pride. As soon as you accomplish something great, the first person you're going to pat on the back will probably be you. When we should be saying glory to God. 2 Timothy describes the day we live in. If this isn't 2023, I do not know what is. Follow me closely here as we wrap this up. But understand this, that in the last days, are we in the last days, people? Amen. There will come times of difficulty. That's an understatement. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. This is how we describe our world. 
It is full of transgressions. It is full of iniquities. But Christ took all of that upon himself. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. Not his own, because he committed none. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed under the weight of the wrath of God for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you know Christ? Romans chapter 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth that the Jesus is Lord, you make him the Lord of your life, and you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he died for your sins, for your transgressions, and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, Mary was willing to make room in her life for the Lord. She took everything on her to-do list and threw it in the trash can. She took all of her wedding plans and scrapped them. She took her own reputation and said no. Elizabeth did the same thing. She's like, I'm an old lady, and now I'm going to have to carry a baby for nine months and then suffer the probably the most painful th pain I've ever felt. But I'm willing to do that for the Lord. John the Baptist chose not to marry, not to have a family. I'm going to make room in my life to preach the kingdom of God and prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus chose not to take a physical bride or have physical children, but to sacrifice his own life. And so what we need to do is lay down everything. What is holding you back from laying down your life? What's keeping you back? What sin is holding you back from just giving it all and surrendering? We're going to have a time of, of prayer and response. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. And there will be a song that we'll be playing. And I want this song to be a prayer. And if we have some prayer partners that are going to come forward now. And you can meet them at the front and they can pray with you. If you would rather just pray by yourself, you could pray where you're at. But this would be a great time to respond and just say, hey, Lord, I'm willing to clear out everything to do whatever you want me to do and to surrender your life. I'm not just talking about people who need to be saved. I'm talking about Christians who haven't given 100% to the Lord, that this would be the time where we would make room for the Lordship of Christ and whatever he wants us to do.
questions about how to trust Christ as your Savior, please talk, talk to me and text me or call me. I'd love to have that great conversation with you. Amanda, would you come help us with question and answer session? Yes, you can clap for Amanda. That's great. <laughs> um, here's one that has actually three that were leftovers from last week when we didn't have Q&A. And you can text those in as we speak. Sometimes reception here is not great, so if it doesn't come through, feel free to raise your hand. What do you think about UFOs in the news lately? Wow. So a guy who works for, we laugh, but a guy who works for the federal government has testified that not only have they captured, captured UFOs, but there is non-human life in them. Testified before Congress. Okay. So 
what's funny is there's a geek side of me that likes the whole UFO controversy and things like that. But um, let me just say this. Jesus said in the last days, in the sky, in the heavens, there will be lying signs and wonders. Wonders. What is a wonder? You like wonder what it is. It's so amazing, but you don't know what it is. And they're, but they're lying. Okay? I think that there's a lot of things that could be going on here. Um, we see in Ezekiel, the wheel within a wheel, we see things that there's things that in the skies that are unexplainable. Um, but I believe it is satanic of origin. I believe, this is my personal opinion here, I'm not going to point to book, chapter, and verse. But I believe this will be the explanation for the rapture. I believe that when millions of us disappear because Christ comes for his church, it will be the abduction of aliens and whatever else. I think it's going to be the reference there. So, um, but here's what's interesting. I've listened to several podcasts about UFOs. And they'll try to have all these scientific explanations about it. And then they'll flip a switch and they'll go right into meditation. And they'll talk about how you can actually communicate with these aliens. And even though they're on a different planet light years away, if you, you can do what's called translocation. Like you will begin to meditate and clear your mind and tell them where you're at and visualize yourself in this room and then visualize the room, visualize the house, visualize Texas, visualize North America, and you keep visualizing all this and you're telling the aliens where you're at and they will communicate with you. And there's people who have said that they've heard aliens talking to them. But all that is, is opening yourself up to demonic possession. It's just, it is Hinduism repackaged to sound scientific in the name of UFOs. So it's very dangerous. Anybody ever heard of DMT? Uh, Aaron Rodgers and other famous people have taken it. It's like, it's like your body produces a little bit of DMT, but when you take a lot of it in some a supplement form, you begin to hear voices. And here's what's in common. All these famous people who've done DMT and they meditate and they, they empty their minds, they always, have, they always have these voices and these spirit guides talking to them. Of course, instead of calling them demons or angels, we're calling them aliens from other planets. Anyway, every single one of them has said, Be, but, but don't talk to the guy in the top hat. It's so weird. They're like, when they're having this hallucination, there's always a demon with a top hat on doing this talking. And, and I, you name your famous person. I can only want to think of right now is Aaron Rodgers. But, but they'll always flip it into, you can start praying to the aliens. And that's going to be the connection. Just watch. And, and anyway, that's a long answer. Good. Can you pray for someone's salvation after their death? No, you cannot. Okay. Uh, Hebrews says it's appointed to man once to die and after this, the judgment. As soon as someone dies, brain waves go flat. Paul said to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. So they are in the presence of the Lord, either being received as their Lord and Savior or they're being on their knees, being uh, standing before their judge. And they will be judged. Good, Patrick. Uh, that's what Mormons believe you can do. Yes. In fact, Mormons believe you can have, be baptized for the dead. So Mormons will get baptized for themselves, and then they'll get baptized. That's why Mormons are obsessed with genealogies, and they study their ancestries. Um, like, what's all the famous websites now that you can trace your um, ancestors.com? All those are started by Mormons, because Mormons go through and they get baptized for their grandmother, great-grandmother, great-great-grandfather, and all these people. And they go through their genealogies and get baptized for them, thinking somehow they can help them after they're dead. You cannot. Only one life to make that decision, and then, then the judgment. When did Jesus know he was the Messiah, or did he always know? Man, that's a great question, because Jesus was always God, okay? Unlike Victoria Osteen, who says Jesus became the Messiah at his baptism. That's not true. Jesus was born. That's why the angel said, today a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. He didn't become the Christ later. He became Christ at his birth. But... Luke also says that the child grew in wisdom and in stature. So Jesus didn't always know that six times six was 36. He had to learn it in school, just like you and I. But yet we see at a very young age, he tells his mom, why are you freaking out when you couldn't find me? Didn't you know I was going to be in the temple doing my father's business? So he knew at a young age. When did he know? Did he know at three? Was he a toddler gone, Messiah, Messiah? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. But I do think that he knew at a young age, again, he had a very clear, he didn't just instantly at age 12 ask amazing questions and answers with the priest in the temple. He had been knowing that obviously seven, eight, nine, and earlier. So 
I don't, that's a great question, but I don't have an exact answer. I just know it was young. As, as old enough he was able to comprehend what a Messiah was, I think he knew it then. How about that for an answer? How tall was the Tower of Babel compared to the Burj Khalifa? Or Burj I don't know the Burj Khalifa is. I don't either. B-U-R-J. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I don't know. Um, I haven't read anything archaeologically speaking of the Tower of Babel. I know it was pretty significant, um, but I, I, have no, I have no idea. That's a great question. I wish I had an answer for you. I'll have to do, we'll have to do some Google research. And this is a prayer request. Um, someone's daughter is leaving for boot camp in Chicago. Um, that They enlisted in the Navy, and they began their 10-week boot camp following a 16-week training, and so they were hoping yeah. that we could pray for her. We can answer that with prayer out loud, right? It's Pilar. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, P Pilar, Pili, as we call, him. We'll call her. She's going into boot camp, Air Force, right? Navy. Okay, cool. So we're going to do it. In fact, Patrick, would you pray for Pilar right now? That, and that she makes this big transition in her life. Amen. Any others? No more questions. All right, let's stand. Hey, before you, as you leave today, would you grab a couple of business cards? Uh, last night, Kayla and I were walking the dogs. We ran across this other young lady that she moved into our neighborhood, and we were able to give her one of those and invite her to church. So, wow, it's so funny that you say this, because we were just talking about yesterday about finding a church. And on the back of that card is a QR code where they can hear the gospel right there with the YouTube video, okay? So... There's a whole box of them down here. There's some at the tables on your way out. Let's read uh, this blessing over one another from Numbers chapter 6. Read aloud with me. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.